Well, good morning, Terranova. Hope everybody is well. My name is Pastor Matt. For those of you who don't know me, um, if you're new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. We have come to worship and praise God. What higher calling is there for us this morning? We get to be in his presence and to worship him and give him praise and make much of him. That's what worship means is worship is directing your energy and your love at something. So often it's not God. I know for myself it's not God sometimes. And, and so this morning it's our hope and our prayer for you all that we would point our affections and uh, in the truth that we know right to God and to make much of him. And so we're going to, we're going to do that by worshiping. And I would ask that you would stand. We are going to read from Hebrews 1, 1 through 9. And we're going to read about this great God who has power and has authority and is, 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 is full of all of the fullness of the things that we desire, that we look for in other places. But God, in the fullness of his, of his character and, and of his love, gives us, um, gives us something to depend on this morning. Um, and just for a reminder of those of you who are, who are new or maybe, um, uh, we, we don't say it every week, but I'll just remind us that when we're singing and standing um, and, and speaking and projecting more, we ask that you would have um, your masks on. We appreciate your, your help with that. So let us um, together speak these words of truth from Hebrews 1, 1 through 9. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much more superior to angels, as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Of the Son, our Heavenly Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Let's worship together.
you that we can put our hope and our trust in you today, that you are our king, that you have purchased our souls because you loved us and you pursued us as, as individual people. Let us not lose sight of the mystery of the gospel. Let us draw closer to you as we learn from your word and as we sing praises to your name. Bless Pastor Daniel as he brings us the word, and may we learn and may we leave here changed because we've encountered the living Jesus Christ. May your spirit open up our hearts May we understand these words and may they, um, may they change our lives, Lord. We ask all of these things in the power of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ and the Father. Amen. You guys may be seated. Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. As we take a look at another parable today that Jesus gives to his disciples, one that he both uh, gives, but also uh, we have the luxury of an explanation that he also offers following giving the parable. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24, and then uh, after he tells the parable, he actually tells a couple more and doesn't give the explanation until verse 36. So I'll let you know when we jump ahead to that verse, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." And then jump down with me to verse 36 where Jesus explains this parable. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, this morning, we ask you to unstop our ears and soften our hearts. Help us to understand what you are teaching us through your word and this parable. I pray your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in our hearts and in our minds doing the work that he does of bringing an illumination of our understanding, conviction where it's needed, encouragement and comfort, especially in the tumultuous world we're living through and in. We pray you'd be glorified in our hearts, Lord. We have every reason to have hope and joy. And so I pray that we would leave here experiencing more richly those realities that exist for your people, your children, Grant us that eternal perspective, Father, even through this teaching of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kind of the big idea or the big takeaway, I think, that we could um, extract from this teaching of Jesus, (coughs) if I could boil it down, would be that the redeemed must coexist with evil until the judgment. Then there are three implications from that big idea, which are the barometer for our hope must not be measured by the presence or absence of evil. In other words, your hope should not be measured by the relative presence and absence of evil that we experience in this life, because that's going to ebb and flow. Second implication is that it's not the job of the servants, whom I believe here are Jesus' disciples, to root out the weeds. And then the third implication is that evil will be singled out and separated at the final judgment. There's a promise there that there will be a decisive justice that will come and judgment that will come against all evil and evildoers. Before we get into um, unpacking those different implications from this text, I want to talk for a moment about pastoral theology. Um, There are lots of different kinds of theology or approaches to studying scripture. There's systematic theology where you're pulling verses from all over Old Testament and New Testament to be able to boil down some understandings of truths about God. There's biblical theology where you're typically drawing theological conclusions from a book at a time through the lens of the particular author who wrote it. And there's pastoral theology. And pastoral theology is interesting and maybe the most tricky because it appears to be saying something that is contradictory to something else we see elsewhere in Scripture. But that's because pastoral theology's purpose is aiming at a particular audience and a particular set of circumstances that that audience is going through. Let me give you an example of that. One of the doctrines uh, that historic Christianity has held to, and we believe at Terra Nova, is the doctrine of eternal security. This idea that once God saves you, you are saved. You cannot lose your salvation. 
This comes through clearly in a passage like John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28, which says, my sheep hear my voice, this is Jesus speaking, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's this beautiful promise of preservation of the saints, preservation of God's people. There's no, we did nothing to earn our salvation to begin with. We can do nothing to lose it. Then you have a passage of scripture like in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, in which the author says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So here's how pastoral theology in light of this particular doctrine and these particular scriptures work. In the one case, you may have somebody who is paralyzed with this sensitive conscience and soul that's worried about losing their salvation. And to that one, God says, no one can snatch you from my hand. In the other instance, you may have a person who's accepted Christ at an event at a particular time in your life, and yet their life hasn't changed at all. They're still largely living for themselves. There's no transformation. To whom God still lovingly says, without holiness, no one shall see me. See, we're better off having the tension in scripture of this kind of pastoral theology because the over in this instance the overly sensitive conscience can find assurance where it's needed and the overly calloused conscience can find conviction where it's needed this is the way pastoral theology works but here's something to be aware of if we don't have that category of understanding pastoral theology often evokes uh, mm, yeah, but response when we come across it in Scripture. You understand what I'm saying? You come across a particular passage that seems to be saying one thing, that you're like, yeah, but it says this over here, so I'm just going to you know, cling to this understanding. The reason why that's dangerous is because often the mm, yeah, but response when we're hearing something from God's Word that's pastoral theology is really an attempt to to avoid an uncomfortable reality that we need to be faced with. And if you rush prematurely to that conclusion, mm, yeah, but, then the value of the discomfort that it's meant to bring in your life to transform you will be lost. There will be several moments like this today. And so my encouragement and challenge to you is don't rush past these truths Jesus is presenting in this parable with a premature, mm, yeah, but, and then run over to this more comfortable and safe zone. I realize that the Bible comes at the topics, these big topics we're looking at today of evil and judgment and the Christian's role in this world to push back against evil from different angles. But sometimes we need to just let certain truths, certain teachings sink in without rushing to other places in Scripture that reassure us of some other angle on the subject. Does this make sense? All right. With that in mind, let's, let's do this. So the big idea, the big takeaway, I think we could boil this passage down to this parable of the weeds here today that Jesus has told is that the redeemed must coexist with evil until the judgment. And the first implication for that is that our barometer for hope, that measuring uh, device for our hope, must not result in a change due to the relative presence or lack of evil in this world by virtue of the fact that it's promised. Here's what I mean by that. I'll unpack that over the course of the next few minutes. Let me first, though, 
start off by just defining hope here for a minute uh, because hope can be something that's wishful thinking and hope can be something that brings deep security in your life um, that allows you to persevere as a Christian. So by hope, I mean confidence, which is just faith, right? Con fide, it's Latin for with faith. Confidence in a reality that gives you the strength and the perspective to persevere. Or put differently, it's a reality you're banking on that fuels your perseverance in the Christian life. But it's important that we're living in light of the right realities, okay? And Jesus gives us two, at least two realities he paints a picture for us here of. And the first is that evil's presence will remain in this world until the judgment, which is clearly implicated by the fact that the weeds and and the wheat, he promises, will coexist until that day. But that first reality implies a second one as well, and that is that that first reality is not gonna go on forever. There is a point that it will terminate, a definitive point in time in which evil will be judged and separated from the righteous once and for all. See, the problem is when we live in light of a reality that is not the one that Jesus has given for us. For example, if your hope rests in this notion that evil is gradually being uprooted and charting towards elimination on this side of eternity, your hope will almost certainly be shattered at some point because that flies in the face of one of the realities that Jesus has just painted for us. This was a view that Jesus' contemporaries held to. They believed that with the coming of the Messiah, he would finally stamp out once and for all in the here and now evil. And this wasn't just held by the Pharisees, Jesus' enemies in that day, who believed that one of the marks of the coming of the Messiah would be this immediate judgment upon Rome and, uh, and, and switching of positions where um, Israel would now be not under the thumb in the reign anymore of an oppressive ruler. But it also was true of some of Jesus' closest friends and family members, John the Baptist. You may remember when we were in Matthew's Gospel and, and we walked through the disillusionment that we saw in him because he was in prison and yet he had been proclaiming and declaring this is the Messiah, the one that has come to judge evil in, a, in an immediate definitive sense. Even John didn't quite have the right picture. It's true of Jesus's family members as they were confused at times. It's true of Peter, certainly in Matthew 16, when he wants nothing to do with the notion of Jesus having to actually suffer and go to the cross. It's true of Jesus' other disciples. All at various points and times, we see them confused, really, by the allowance of this concept of the weeds, evil and evil ones, to continue to flourish and thrive despite the fact Jesus had come to inaugurate this kingdom. It was a cognitive dissonance for people then, and it is now too for us, I think. And so part of the reason why Jesus tells this parable was so that his followers would not be shocked by this reality that evil's presence would continue and at times even flourish in this world until a time and point in the future at which Jesus would come and judge all evil. Okay, so how do we not just come away from this teaching thoroughly discouraged? Thank you, Pastor Daniel, that I woke up this morning and came to church so you could tell me that evil is going to persist till the end of days. That was really encouraging with, of course, a heavy hint of sarcasm. I understand that. I mean, you may be asking yourself then the logical question, what would be the point? What is the point then of even 
trying to do good, fight for justice, labor to see God's kingdom move forward and flourish and push back against the darkness here on earth. Here's where this parable can offer us some real encouragement this morning. Firstly, it releases you from your hope being tied to outcomes that are beyond your control. Outcomes like the way that this upcoming election is going to go. Outcomes like the way that our culture has been going and may continue to go. Rather than focusing on the outcome you hope to see in our world, our country, and our communities, focus on faithfulness. What you can do to introduce kingdom life into this world and then leave the outcome up to God. It's a game-changing perspective. And understand that the ultimate outcome that we are hoping and longing for, the elimination of evil, the flourishing of all of creation, is guaranteed by what Jesus is teaching here. Just not necessarily in the timing or the way that you might think or hope for. All right, think of it this way. It's an analogy from my fairly limited reservoir as I typically dip into the realm of sports, but it works for me and hopefully it will for you too. So this is an analogy from the sports world. And um, if, you, if you watch sports at all, you know that there's a, typically a constant ebb and flow, especially within the sport of basketball, one that I, I watch. I just, the playoffs just finished this past month. And it can be an emotional roller coaster because one team can go on a run and start to get ahead far enough that you think, ah, this game's over. And then the other team comes back and then they take the lead and you think the momentum has shifted so much, now they're going to win. You can be going up and up, up and down as a fan of sports, especially basketball. And there was a couple of times in this playoffs uh, where there was a team that was down by close to 30 points at the half, which basically would have been a record for them to overcome. And they didn't come back from that. And so if you're watching your team, and they're the ones that have to overcome this massive deficit, and it's halftime, it's stressful. If you're at all in invested in this team and in this sport, it's stressful, because you're thinking to yourself, yeah, this isn't likely. It's not really much fun to watch the second half of that game. But what if you knew the outcome ahead of time? What if you knew your team was going to come back and win? You still don't know how, but you know that the win is guaranteed. From the standpoint of a fan, all of a sudden it becomes much more of a pleasurable experience to watch that second half because you have no idea how this is going to happen, but you also know they're going to win your team. Now let me shift the metaphor a little bit and put you into this game as one of the players. Just because you know you are going to win doesn't mean you stop playing the game, right? But now instead of having to focus on this massive deficit that seems impossible to overcome, you're released to be able to focus on the fundamentals, on playing hard, on not losing your concentration, on putting yourself between your man in the basket on defense and moving the ball on offense and not throwing up desperation prayer shots. Because even though things look bleak from the outside, you already know the final score. Somehow your team is going to come out on top. You just have to keep playing hard, keep encouraging your teammates, keep executing the game plan that your coach has given you. That's what you're responsible for. And somehow, perseverance in that comes out in a win in the end. Now, I know that all analogies break down at some point, and this one is no exception, but here's what I'm trying to say. Your efforts, despite Jesus saying, hey, count on evil being with us until the judgment, your efforts now do matter. You should vote. You should know why you're voting for what you're voting for in this election, according to what we understand from the Bible. You should fight for where you see equality absent 
in this world. You should fight to see the life of the unborn valued and preserved. You should fight against all evils, including human sex trafficking. You shouldn't tolerate evil, whether that be in your own heart or in the world around you. But you also shouldn't be shocked by its existence. Or throw up your hands in defeat because it appears at times like the wheat outnumber the weeds. The reality is, guys, think of it this way. Jesus was in this world for nearly 33 years, and considering how his life ended, you could arguably make the case that the world was a more evil place when he left it than when he came. And yet that didn't mean that the game was over or that his followers should give up. Just because evil remains, even thrives at times, that doesn't mean that your efforts are in vain. So don't focus on the apparent deficit to be overcome. Focus on the kingdom life that God has called you to live, faithfully lived out that out, and leave the results to God. This is going to feel like a bit of a tangent, but I, I do feel like it's relevant to the point I'm trying to draw out from this passage. Let me offer you a quick theology of the kingdom of God and the continuity of that kingdom between this life, the now, and the not yet, the eternal kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. This is something, by the way, that some of you in here uh, about a year ago or so participated in one of our rounds of Theology at the Tap Room, and we dug deeply into this as we looked at N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, where he talks about some of these things. There are differences of opinions amongst Christians on this, but I want to offer you my perspective this morning. As I said before, what you do now does have an effect in eternity. And no Christian would resist that idea, at the very least when it comes to what the Bible has to teach about eternal reward, right? Treasures in heaven. But I want to take that a step further. I don't believe that your words, actions, or the fruits of your labors right now, here on this side of eternity, get erased when God makes the new heavens and the new earth. I believe they live on in some sense. The language that is used of God one day destroying the heavens and the earth in places like 2, Timothy, or 2 Peter 3 and elsewhere, the language of fire is that of purification rather than incineration and destruction. Think about this. Why would God destroy that which he initially deemed as good? Did he, was he going to do a better job of getting it right the second time around? I mean, he doesn't do that with us as people, right? The Bible says that the work that he's begun in you and me, he will bring to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He doesn't destroy us and start from scratch. So could it be that the remaking of all creation is more like this as well? That like fire destroys the dross, the impurities, leaving only the pure elements of precious metals? God has already begun remaking this world through his kingdom people and that at the judgment he will finish purifying all that remains that has been damaged by sin, restoring his creation to the way that things were meant to be. If that's the case, and I believe that it is, then the kingdom work you are doing now in the souls of men and the care of God's creation will actually live on in some sense into eternity the continuity of this world into the next, this kingdom into the next. I realize this is a huge topic in and of itself, worthy of a whole side conversation or sermon or theology at the tap room, book reading, but the reason I bring it up to you now is to say this. You and I are not responsible for the outcome of bringing an end to evil in this world. 
And in fact, we're promised that evil will coexist with us to a greater and lesser degrees throughout history. But your efforts now do matter. Faithfulness to do what you can do now matters. Your pressing back against the darkness now does matter. And in some way, where kingdom life takes root in this world, however great or small it may appear to be, its impact carries over into the eternal kingdom. When you embrace this reality, your hope then is secure because it doesn't rest in a temporal outcome of something like an election or a culture conforming with our Christian values as much as we hope and pray for those things in a different sense. But it rests in the confidence that God will triumph in the end and that faithfulness in the meantime in your life really is of consequence, both now and in eternity. And so I hope you can see the good news in that and the hope that exists in that, despite the teaching and the promise here that evil will remain with us until that final day. That's the first implication we have here. The second implication of the redeemed must coexist with evil until the judgment is this, that it's not the job of the servants to root out the weeds. I think the principle here is this. Don't be hasty in assigning yourselves the role of arbiter as to who are the wheat and who are the weeds in this world. Many commentators understand the servants in view here to be representative of Jesus' disciples then and now, including you and, and me, as differentiated from those reapers that Jesus talks about um, who uh, he indicates will come at the time of the harvest, which is in reference clearly to angels. And so Jesus is saying then to us, it is not your job, my followers, my disciples, to be weed pullers. This parable makes the point that there are weeds in the world, sons of the evil one who are working to destroy the kingdom, but that it can be really hard to tell the difference. Just to give you a little bit of a background here, the weeds that are being sown, most scholars understand to be a, a former version of, I think it's Darnell or Darnell, uh, a kind of weed that is wheat-like in appearance, especially in the early stages. And to the untrained eye, it's nearly indistinguishable from wheat until its fruit or the heads of grain become visible at the harvest. And then at that point, it can be more easily separated from the wheat. And what happens is it's, it, in ancient times, it would be bound and used as a source of fuel and burned in the fire when a better source of fuel wasn't available. Aaron, you can tell me afterwards if I'm right or wrong about how Darnell works and if you've ever had to do that in your field. So when the servants ask the master here then if they should go out into the wheat, uh, to gather the weeds, he gives a definitive answer of no. In other words, the job of determining who are Christians and who are not needs ultimately to be left to God at the judgment. An example of this kind of premature zeal that we see in Jesus' time with his own disciples is in Luke chapter 9 where James and John in particular are in view and they go with the rest of the disciples into Samaria as they're ultimately on their way to Jerusalem and they go there to make preparations for a stay. They need to, to rest and to stay over before they continue their journey. But they're rejected by the Samaritans. They're not offered hospitality, and so James and John are angry, and they go back, and they ask Jesus if he wants them to call down fire on the Samaritans to destroy them, which, needless to say, it's just an audacious thing to ask of Jesus. But um, also needless to say, Jesus rebukes them. 
just as the owner in this parable forbids his servants from pulling up the weeds. See, guys, our purpose and the purpose of Jesus' disciples then is not to compel people to follow Jesus through the threat of punishment, but through a humble proclamation of the gospel, of which they themselves appear to have forgotten that they were recipients, at least in that moment. And I think that's probably the main problem and the main concern that the master and Jesus has with his servants taking on this role. Ironically, those who were once weeds themselves have less patience for their fellow weeds than the one, than the God who made them wheat. Let me put that a little bit differently in clear terms. God's patience for the lost and the evil in this world tends to exceed that of those who were formerly lost and whom God has found and saved. How quickly we can forget the depths to which we've fallen and the fallen in the grace that we've been extended in our salvation. I mean, which of us here wouldn't say when we really think about it, I'm so thankful for God's patience in my life, that he, his patience endured long enough so that I could be one of the beneficiaries of it. How quickly our thankfulness to God's patience then tends to disappear when we find ourselves secure in his love. But God is a patient God. As we're told many places in scripture, like Ezekiel 33, 11, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Maybe one big principle as an aside here today, guys, is be thankful for God's patience in your life. You are a product of it, and so am I. See, the master's main concern in this parable was this, that in trying to do the weeding themselves, the servants may unwittingly uproot the wheat with the weeds in trying to separate them before the harvest. A couple reasons this could happen. Number one, um, there's a point in time at which when the weeds and wheat were growing and maturing, their roots would become interwoven and tangled. And so literally, if you're trying to uproot a weed, you might pull up the wheat along with it. But also this could happen because of how easy it would be to mistake for the untrained eye one from the other. And I think a part of what Jesus is saying here is that wheat might accidentally be uprooted because there were some that were actually weeds that would later become wheat. And if you're not tracking with that, we were all weeds at one point in time. So how are we to know that the weeds that remain in the field won't one day become wheat by the grace of God, the same grace that saved you and I? The servants don't really have the ability to discern this like the master does. The job of discerning who are wheat and who are weeds, I think Jesus is saying, must be left up to God. And by being overly zealous to try and publicly make that determination ourselves, we could be guilty of driving an even deeper wedge between the church and the world. Making the determination that determination is not our burden to carry. It is not our responsibility to execute. Now, this is where pastoral theology comes in. And it's coming in a lot of other places, too, that I haven't pointed out, but I will here. I do think that it's different within the context of the local church. But the moment that we start to make these kinds of judgments and discernments outside of the context of Christian community where we can truly know one another, we're at the risk of aiding in the destruction of weeds that would one day become wheat. Regardless of what you believe about the sovereignty of God in people's salvation, 
There are other passages that clearly speak to the consequences of mishandling discipleship that should sober us. Like, it's better to put a millstone around your neck than to lead one of these little ones astray or into sin, which scholars understand means probably to be an apostate or to reject Jesus. We have to be really careful when we make these kinds of judgment calls. Instead, we need to focus on and be ambassadors of Jesus Christ and his gospel, speaking the truth in love, living as citizens of his kingdom, but that doesn't include making public declarations of judgment about who are the wheat and who are the weeds. Now, I know it may be helpful, and people might be thinking, I just wish I had some specific examples of this. And it wouldn't be wrong for me to do so, but it's tricky because this is as much about the heart behind why someone would do this as the act itself. I suppose and believe there are instances in which it's appropriate and necessary for there to be public rebukes of this kind, but I think they're rare. And I think that those instances could just as easily be motivated by the pride of those who've forgotten their own status, humble status as former weeds, or motivated by a misplaced sense of importance as the ones who are meant to bring an end to evil in this world. I think this is why Jesus says, let he who has ears use them. And he says that, by the way, at the end of the explanation. So obviously there's still work to be done to figure out the personal application of these things in our lives. It's important that we allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate in our hearts and minds where these things are true without someone else necessarily providing a perfect rubric through which you can easily either accuse or acquit yourself, okay? So there's work left to be done here in discerning the application of this teaching to your life. There's a third implication of this idea that evil will coexist with the redeemed until the judgment, and this focuses in on the until the judgment, the finality um, with which justice will one day come in a full and complete sense. And we're not gonna spend as much time here, um, but I do at least wanna touch upon this idea of the final judgment in hell. We're gonna have time later in Matthew's gospel to dig into this more deeply. Once we get into the latter chapters of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, there's theology and doctrine unpacked more fully there that we'll use as a launch pad to have this conversation. But I'll say a few things here today as well. First of all, we don't know a lot about hell. For that matter, we don't know a lot about heaven or the new, new creation. Um, but we know enough. We know what God wants us to know. But there are oftentimes misconceptions in our culture surrounding both these things, heaven and hell. For example, hell is often depicted as this geographic subterranean location beneath the, the earth's crust. But that doesn't come from the Bible. And that's just one example of many other odd ideas that aren't biblical in their origin. Here's what we do know about hell. We know that hell is real, we know that it is eternal, and we know that it is a place that we don't want to be and we don't want others to be. We also know that the key thing that separates the future of God's kingdom, God's kingdom realized in its fullness, from hell is the presence versus the absence of God and the absence versus the presence of sin and evil. I'll say that a little differently. In other words, where hell, where hell is located really isn't as of much importance as understanding what will characterize it, which is what the opposite of the kingdom of God is characterized by. 
And so if what the kingdom of God is characterized by is the fullness of God's presence and the complete and utter absence of evil and sin, then hell will be just the opposite of that. The absence of God's presence and the full expression and extent of sin and evil. With that in mind, think about this. If that is true, have we not already tasted then, in a sense, hell on earth? Every time we choose to sin over trusting God, we are, in a sense, choosing a kind of hell. Every time we revel in what is evil versus what is good, we are, in a sense, choosing hell. And when we love our sin, aren't we, in a sense, choosing to love hell? Why do I say this? Because again, hell is one of those things that I think is often misconstrued in our culture that actually pits this larger chasm between people and God. It's often construed as a picture of this twisted and victive God who created this place to torment souls that we should pity. But think about this. Hell was not even in existence at the point of creation when God called everything good. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, we're told that in the beginning God created the heavens and not hell, Isn't it interesting how oftentimes those two things are pitted against each other? And yet, as far as I understand, we never have those things in the same sentence in the Bible. No, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hell was something that was introduced with sin, which was introduced by us, humanity. And sin has in turn produced a kind of hell on earth. So, If the kingdom of God is the purification of this world and its citizens, those who will be citizens of this kingdom, then hell is a place where sin and evil are unleashed to the fullest degree without any restraint from God. Yet those who are there will continue to choose it and love it, even as they continued to choose and love it over the salvation that was offered to them in this life. Now, that may seem like an odd thing to say considering that we're told that hell will be a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't seem to be like something somebody would choose. But consider this. We know what it is to have a love-hate relationship with our sin, if we're honest. We love it one moment, but we hate it the next moment, even if that's because of the consequences of it, and it doesn't necessarily keep us even from going back to it. How often do we choose to sin? In that sense, how often do we choose hell on earth? Now, by God's grace, he gives us new desires and the power to walk in victory over temptation and sin. Amen? But for those who do reject him, sinful desire unchecked just begets more unsinful desire, and it's a lie to ever think that sin hits rock bottom. So just imagine how horrible hell must be. Weeping is also an odd thing for somebody who chooses their circumstances. That doesn't necessarily make sense. But this kind of weeping isn't a weeping of godly repentance. There's another kind of sorrow the Bible talks about that is a worldly sorrow, where we feel sorry for ourselves and we pin the blame for our misery on someone else, namely God, who is the one that I'm sure the anger is being directed toward here when this expression gnashing of teeth is used. So this is just some fodder for thought on the subject of hell. If someone loves their sin and revels in evil now, if they know the gospel of Jesus Christ but continue to choose to live their ways over his ways, is it any surprise that a person would not want any part of his kingdom in the future life? But God continues to be patient. 
God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And even the unlikeliest of hearts can change, which is exactly why we're called to stand back and let God do his job of discerning between the wheat and the weeds. Yet, there is a terminal end to his patience. As we also learn from this passage that there will be a harvest, a judgment, where evil will be dealt with decisively. And it's not wrong for us to long for that day too. It may feel like a conflict between our desire for those who don't yet know Jesus to repent and also longing for the day where it'll just be done enough already. God, bring your justice and your judgment on this earth. What that will look like. For those who are in Christ, a final purification will occur in which we'll become fully who we were meant to be, as it says in verse 43, shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father, All remaining sin and evil will be burned away from within you so that all that will remain is Jesus shining through you, personality, interests, passions, abilities, and all. But in order for the kingdom of God to be pure, verse 42 tells us that all causes of sin and all lawbreakers will be thrown into a fiery furnace. These are those who've continued their allegiance to themselves, continued their allegiance to the evil one, and who, despite God's patience, have spurned the sacrifice of the Son and him as their king. So where the office of offer of forgiveness is refused, the only option left for God to fulfill his promise of a kingdom where justice and holiness reign supreme is the separation of the weeds to hell, to the hell that they have chosen for themselves. But please hear this, guys. The choice to accept Christ and to submit to him as our king does not make us better than those who have not chosen that. It just makes us better off. Before we were wheat, we were also once weeds, sons of the evil one, and only by a supernatural act of God's grace in our lives have our eyes been opened and our hearts opened and changed. And we must never forget that, or else we'll be tempted to overstep our roles and start pointing fingers to those that we deem to be weeds with the wrong heart. This is why, in part, we celebrate communion every week to remind us of the grace and the love of God and the work and the person of Jesus Christ who absorbed hell on earth for us in himself, all evil and all sin, so that we could be made redeemed sons and daughters of the King. So for all who are followers of Jesus today, having confessed our sins and being in right relationship with one another, we participate in communion as a way to reinforce and reaffirm these truths, humble our hearts, and help us to enter into a deeper worship of our God, who is not wishing or willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So you'll have the next song or so to take communion at your own pace, so feel free to take some time to pray and to reflect before you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, representing Jesus' body broken for you and his blood shed for you. As we take this time for communion, as Daniel mentioned, take your time um, taking the bread and the cup um, when you are ready. Um, We're going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, to help us understand and and to and to really come deep to the grip of what Daniel was preaching on of, of God's 
patience, God's love, loving faithfulness to us, he never stops pursuing us. So as we take this time, let us, uh, let us offer our worship back up to him. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Time and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy. Sing about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to and to God.
what great news today. Um, would you be seated now, and we're going to just close our service with a couple announcements. Um, again, my name is Pastor Matt. For those of you who are visiting with us or new, it's, it's good to see you all here worshiping with us today. Um, we have a bunch of boxes out in the back in green and red, which means we're getting ready for uh, Operation Christmas Child. Um, so if you want to grab a box and fill that with items, um, there's actually, uh, Aaron Lawrence made a nice slip that says all the things, suggested items for those. Um, you can go online on Operation Christmas Child's website and you can print out a, a label, a $9 label. You print it out, you pay for it online, you print it out, you put it on the box, and then it's sent out. Um, and you can actually track your box and see where in the world it goes. Um, or if you don't want to do that, if you don't have a printer, you'd rather pay cash, just throw $9 cash in that box when you return it back here, November 19th, and Erin will help us um, get those out. Uh, we appreciate her helping with that. So that's Operation Christmas Child. Please participate, grab a box. We love to do that um, each year as a church. Uh, our next announcement is right after, not right after, but this afternoon, 2.30 to 4.30 in the low room downstairs. We are doing a, uh, a talk about our upcoming election in our Terra Talk series. This is our living room style conversations that we have as a church about potentially difficult or decisive, uh, divisive topics. Um, so the book, um, How Do I Love Church Members with Different Politics, that was a prere prerequisite. Um, and also registering was a prerequisite to this course, um, course conversation, however you want to call it. Um, but if, you have, if you've read the book and you haven't registered, that's okay. We have room so you can come. Um, if you want to come, and this is the first time you're hearing about it, um, there's about a half an hour long audio version of this book that you could listen to this afternoon. I actually read the book in like a half an hour in one sitting, so I have some copies. Come up and see me afterward. I'll get you a copy of that book if you'd like to read it this afternoon and come join us. We have room. So go to the Lowen Room. Go down our alleyway here and come in the back, please, because there will be a service going on up here, and we want to just keep uh, our traffic separate from First Baptist Church. So um, that's all we have for today. I'm going to have you stand one more time. We're getting our exercise. And would we say this benediction together as we leave today? It should be on the screen up there. So as a church, let's declare this truth as we go. Lord, may your kingdom come. Would you govern us by your word and spirit that we submit ourselves unto you always more and more. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that exalts itself against you, and all wicked devices formed against your holy word until the full coming of your kingdom, wherein you shall be all in all. Amen.